Then I, Daniel, looked and before looked there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these things before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and a half time, when the powers of the holy people has been uh, finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till, till the end, for uh, you will rest and at the end of these days you will rise and receive your allotted inheritance. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's really great to have everybody here. It's a great day to, uh, to be together as a family and to worship God. Uh, before we pray and uh, press our mind into God's word, uh, just a reminder that uh, tomorrow is going to, uh, to be the day that Manuel and Melissa Soto and their family begin their, their long trip back to Santiago, Chile. They'll be leaving tomorrow evening. And as a church family, not only do we want to always encourage them, but we want to pray for the safety of that trip and for the fruitfulness of that work in, in Santiago. And then just a reminder, some of this information is also in the announcement sheet, that next Sunday night after our assembly, we are going to have the, uh, the Taiwan report. There was a number of our people that... Uh, went to Taiwan uh, for about three and a half weeks. And during that period of time, they, they just worked and worked and worked. And there was study after study after study of, of, of leading folk to, uh, to the Word of God and to the Christ by teaching English. And uh, we're going to have a finger food fellowship over in the fellowship hall after our evening assembly. And there's going to be a, a really wonderful presentation that, uh, that those folks have put together to let us know the kinds of things that they were involved in in Taiwan. And then uh, last but not least, this is kind of a mission minute, uh, mission moment for us. But a as you know, um, many of you know, I'm on the, uh, the board of Great Cities Missions uh, which is a ministry to churches of Christ and helping to plant churches among Spanish and Portuguese-speaking people, primarily in South America and Central America, but now even here in, in the United States. And one of the things that I've been really privileged to be a part of over the, a number of years is to be a part of a team that has been trained to go down to uh, Brazil and to minister to all of these missionary men uh, for about a week. And it's a time of renewal. It's a, it's a time for them to recharge your batteries. A lot of these guys are on their own. A lot of these guys don't really have all the resources that they need to be able to do the kind of thing that God has called them to do. And that conference uh, is, is a way that we can minister to those guys and help them 
get to a healthy place and to, uh, to, to sometimes renew their relationship with God and to be recharged and, and to find themselves in a better place when they go back. There is also one for the missionary wives, which is equally important. And Ellen is going to be leaving in October to go down to South America to be a part of those, that team of women that are going to be ministering to these missionary wives from all over South America. Well, the, uh, the couple that is kind of the brainchild with Great Cities uh, Missions uh, in putting together these conferences uh, and, and making sure that these missionaries are cared for are in our assembly this morning. And they're sitting right back here in the annex. Can I get George, uh, Georgia and Ron Freitas to stand in? Let's welcome them. They would, they would love to, to talk to you about the kinds of stuff that they do with Great Cities Mission and taking care of uh, missionaries. This is a great couple. They were part of a missionary team that went into Curitiba, Brazil, back in, in the late 1980s. That sounds like half a century ago. And I started thinking about it. You know, it really was about half a century ago. But they established one of the, the vibrant churches in Brazil. And I'm really thankful to be associated with them. And I'm glad that they're here this morning. Let's, let's pray and let's ask God to bless us as we study His word, and then we're going to jump into the lesson. Father, we acknowledge that there is so much that we desire to know, but we also acknowledge that our minds are finite, and that to be filled with the infinite knowledge of your greatness, Father, would destroy us. So we're thankful that you have put your spirit in us to sanctify us and to help us, that you are drawing us inch by inch, day by day, closer in relationship to you. And revealing Yourself in such a way, Father, that You become more precious to us and of greater value and worth to us every day. We love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we want to do a better job of that each day, Father, for You are so beautiful before us and amazing. Thank You for the text of Daniel that we're going to be looking at this morning, Father. We pray that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Bless us, Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And all the church said. As you know, from January to uh, December of this year, we're going to be looking at every, uh, every book of the Bible in, in kind of a chronological order. In, in fact, what we're trying to do is not just know these books better so that as we read them we have a handle on them, but we really want to hear the story of the Bible. And that's one of the phrases that we start off, or a statement that we start off every Sunday morning with. It's this one. It's up on the screen. You can write it down if you've never done that before. But the statement is, the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not just a, a, a mix match of stories and of books, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong when sin entered into the world and what God is doing to put it back together. And this morning, we're going to be looking at that particular part of the story that is the book of Daniel. But before we do that, we want to take a step out of Daniel and think for a couple of minutes about Jonah. Question. What was the purpose of Jonah being written when it was written? We never ask those kinds of questions, but, it, but it's an important one. Another question, uh, sort of like it, is why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Well, the most obvious answer is because he loves the people of Nineveh. They are his sons of creation. He loves his sons of creation, wanted them to repent and wanted them to be saved. And that's one of the big obvious answers to the question of why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. 
The not-so-obvious answer is this. It was to prepare Israel for the next stage of her history, which was exile in Babylon. It was to prepare the people for life in Babylon. Now, to me, that's an interesting thing to think about. Jonah demonstrates that God is not just concerned with Israel, that He's not just concerned with, with Israel that He called out of Egypt by the Exodus, but for the entirety of His creation, for every single human being which even includes a wicked and bloodthirsty nation like Babylon. And this is one of the things that Jeremiah, now it's not just Jonah, but it's also Jeremiah now, it's one of the things that Jeremiah reminds the people once they've gone off into exile. They're in exile because of the judgment that has come upon them because of their sin, but God also has a purpose for them, and it's found in this letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 28 and 29. But listen to these words in Jeremiah 29. Beginning in verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, the last part of that text is a reference to all of the false prophets, and in particular, a reference to Hananiah, who falsely predicted that the people who were going from Jerusalem, who were going into Babylon, would be there about two years, and they would come back to, to Israel. That they were just going to be in exile for two years. If Israel believed that, that they were just going to be gone for two years, and then they were going to come back, they would never have engaged Babylon. They would never have gotten involved with Babylon. And God says, no. Verse 7, He says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city that you're living in, even though it's hundreds of miles away and it's Babylon. Pray for that city. Live your life in Babylon. In other words, what He says to the exiles is, as you live, create a godly culture in Babylon. When I send you off in judgment to Babylon, you are to create a godly culture in Babylon. Now, I want you to notice something at the very beginning of the book of Daniel. Beginning in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of what? Shinar. The land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The land of Shinar, land of Shinar, land of Shinar. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Does the land of Shinar bring up any, any images? I, Genesis 11. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. The plain in the land of Shinar, or Shinar was the building site for the Tower of Babel. And you remember what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was this tower that men were building, and they were building it into the heavens in order 
for them to get mano a mano, eye to eye, face to face with God. It was about, as Genesis 11 4 says, about making a name for themselves, to make themselves great in the eyes of God. Now this is, because of Genesis 11, one of the reasons why Babylon is synonymous in the Bible with human life that is structured and human life that is advanced without God. That Tower of, of Babel was an attempt to achieve identity and to, to, to manifest or to put together an identity that was godless, that was without God. Now that's the first book of the Bible. Let's go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And there we find Babylon being referenced again over and over again by the Apostle John. Babylon in Revelation is the city in rebellion and at war against God. Babylon is the city that chews up and it's the power that destroys the people of God but is later thrown down in judgment and destroyed. Revelation chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. What Babylon in the Bible becomes a metaphor is human pride. Babylon is a metaphor for human pride. It's a, a, a city that's about a human name. It's a city that is about human greatness and about human pride and human achievement as opposed to that that is given by God. It's no different in Daniel. For instance, Daniel chapter 4, look at verse 29. Story, a little text about Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected. He's thinking about himself. And he's looking out on the great city and he says, Is this not Babylon the, what? Great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and by the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar is just one in a chain of many people that just inside of the culture of Babylon is saying it's about man. And it's into this grievous earthly city associated with humans making a name for themselves into the exiles, the people who bear the name of God. Into the city that bears a human name come the people who bear the name of God. It's one of the passages that we find in the book of Numbers where Moses, after being instructed by God, is giving some instructions to Aaron and his sons who are the priests on how they're to bless the people. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. At the end of that, he says in verse 27, in doing that and reminding the people of, of, of God's blessing that comes upon them, he says, so they will put my what? Name. They will put my name on the Israelites. And I will bless them. Now before we look at a couple of texts in Daniel, I think it's important for us to kind of revisit just a little bit the historical context of what's happening. As I mentioned last week when we were looking at Ezekiel, King Josiah is, is killed in battle by the Egyptians as they're on their way to help Assyria, who is kind of descending and, and, and waning in power as Babylon is, is beginning to, to ascend to power. And because they've killed Josiah, the, the Egyptians are going to take over Israel now, South Judah, and they install Jehoiakim as king of South Judah. Well, the battles continue, and Babylon defeats Assyria, and then Babylon defeats Egypt around 606-605 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish. And then Nebuchadnezzar, because he's defeated all the powers around him, and he is the main man in the Middle East, Nebuchadnezzar, to make the point that Babylon is now in charge and the power to be reckoned with, takes some of the citizens of Jerusalem, 
which begins, this is about 605, 606 B.C. When he does that, it begins that 70 years of exile. And it's in that first group to establish who's in charge that Daniel goes into exile. There is a second one, about 597, 596 B.C., which is the one that Ezekiel goes off into exile into Babylon too. And then the third exile is the occasion of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now Daniel is in Babylon. He is hundreds of miles from Israel. And the question for a guy like Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, along with all of those other Hebrews that are living in exile, is how do you live in exile while you're waiting for restoration? How do you live in exile while you're waiting for restoration? How do you live in a place where you're outnumbered? Well, one of the things that the book of Daniel reminds us is that if you're going to live in an exile with integrity, faith integrity, you maintain an observable core identity. You maintain an observable core identity. Part of the strategy, Babylon's strategy, to squelch any of the rebellions and any of the uprisings among, among its conquered people was to assimilate them into their culture and allow them then, after seeing the greatness of Babylonian culture, to return home, awed and, 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 and subdued in spirit by the greatness that is Babylon. One of the, and there was a lot of ways that they did this, but one of the main ways they did this was to reach down into the core of people's hearts and souls and to eradicate their spiritual identity. Now that's what's going on in Daniel chapter 1. There's this lieutenant by the name of Ashpenaz who's asked by Nebuchadnezzar, bring some of the sons of Israel who were of royalty and nobility from Jerusalem into his presence. And he orders these youths to be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That is, their, their intellectual properties and their intellectual base material. They were going to transfer that from the Chaldeans into the minds of these Hebrews. He also orders that these youths experience the richness of the culture through the culinary arts. To see that Babylon is a place that tastes great. And they even receive new names. You're not going to be called by your old Hebrew names. We're going to give you a new name. And this was to happen for three years. And then at the end of that, those three years, they would enter into some sort of civil service which would foster dependence and hopefully loyalty to the Chaldeans. Now that's the kind of context that Daniel finds himself. He's one of these guys that is trying to be brought in lock, stock, and barrel into a different kind of culture, a culture that did not recognize God. Now how is he going to live in it? Verse 8. Daniel, what? Say it louder, church. He, what? Resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Well, the Ashpenaz is going to look at him and say, Are you crazy? Are you trying to get myself killed? Are you trying to get killed along with me? There's no way. So we drop down to verse 12, and Daniel says to that kind of argument against doing it, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but what? Vegetables to eat and water to drink. Vegetables and water. Vegetables and water. Kind of a Hollywood diet in the 7th century. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. What Daniel is doing in, in the resisting and, and resolving is to, to keep the prevailing culture from giving him his identity. Now, the question is, 
what does it mean that Daniel does not want to defile himself? Well, you know, with the foods and all of that, we think initially dietary laws, that these are the laws of cash root, or, or in Leviticus chapter 11, the laws of what is kosher and unkosher. The problem here is that in those kosher laws, wine was not forbidden. It was kosher, but Daniel refuses even it. So what we have here is more than dietary laws uh, taking place in, in this, this test. Well, it could be religious overtones. This Leo Oppenheim has written a very, very good article entitled Feeding the Gods. And he talks about how in the Middle East during ancient times, among these ancient people, there was, uh, with these pagan, pagan gods, the king would prepare these sumptuous banquets and whatever was left over from them being fed to the gods, which, as you can imagine, was everything, they would then eat it. And as Leo Oppenheim says, there were no kings in the ancient world that ever went hungry. And so what we have here with the religious overtones is the question of eating foods sacrificed to idols, similar to what Paul is addressing in Corinth. Here's the deal. Daniel is not, I don't think that Daniel is really concerned about this because he is going to eat the food of the palace. And who says that the vegetables that he is eating could not have been offered to these idols as well? I don't think it's a dietary law issue. I don't even think it's about the religious overtones of eating something that's been sacrificed to an idol, I think that it's core identity here. Who gets the credit for their flourishing appearance in verse 15? The king is not going to get the credit because they did not eat his food. And one of the amazing things here is that they are literally in the Hebrew, vuvre basar. They have grown fatter, literally fatter in the flesh. And they've done that by eating vegetables and water. Now, I'm, you can look at me and tell I'm not much of a dieter. But I do know that if you're just staying away from everything but water and staying away from everything except vegetables, you're not necessarily going to get fatter in the flesh unless God is doing it. And that's the point. One of the interesting things to me about this text is that Daniel recognizes the futility of making his point with a sword. Or, or, or some forceful means here. Now, he is going to see the futility of this as Judah goes to the mattresses with Babylon back in Jerusalem. He, what, what Daniel does, and these three friends do, is so counterintuitive to the way most culture wars, cultural wars are waged that it boggles our minds. What Daniel knows is that you cannot argue with a changed life. And so he says to Ashman, as I want you to observe my life. I want you to observe observe the way that, that I live my life, and I want you to see the greatness of God's power in my work and in my life and in my faith life and in the, my perspective of life altogether. And you know the story how it ends. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his friends look so much better that Ashpenaz, the lieutenant, changes the diets for all the youths. And a seed is planted. And what Daniel is saying here is that that culture of war, that spiritual war that is being waged on the battlefield of my life, my body, my mind, my heart, my soul, is going to be won by the king of the universe and not the king of any city. And so wherever God's people find themselves as exiles, one of the things that they do is to, is to understand that they maintain that observable core identity. Number two, demonstrate the priceless worth of God. 
Now, there are two stories here. We only have time for one, but there's the, the Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6. We'll, we'll talk about that maybe some other time. But there is in chapter 3 the story of the golden image, 60 cubits, which is 90 feet tall. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image on the plain of Dura. And he says, whenever you hear the sound of music being played by one of the musical instruments, the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, everyone is to fall down in the worship of this idol. And guess what? The music starts playing on the radio, and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego do not comply. And because they're exiles, and because they're foreigners, and because it looks like they're being rebellious, Charges are brought against them, and Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. After all of these years of trying to get them assimilated into this culture, they're going to stand up and they're not going to comply with my wishes? And he flies into this rage. You will bow down to this idol, or you will be thrown into a fiery furnace, and what God can deliver you out of my hand? Well, they say to him in verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand. But even if He does not, underline those words, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve Your gods or worship the image of gold that You have set up. And when he, they say that, that even if God does not save us, and we are thrown into that furnace, and we perish, we are not going to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that his face is contorted. And he says to the guys around him, he says, heat the furnace seven times hotter than normal, and it's so hot that all of the men that are carrying these three Hebrews to the furnace, are, they perish in the heat of those flames. But those three Hebrews are tied up everything that they have, their turbans, everything, their cloaks, their shoes, everything, and they're thrown into the fire, thrown into that furnace. And the king is sitting there. That's what kings do. When people are being executed, they sit. And, and they're, they're, they're on that throne. And then all of a sudden, he stands up. Kings don't do that. And the reason he stands up is that he is in awe that these three Hebrews are not being consumed by the fire. And on top of that, there is a fourth who appears to be one of the sons of the gods. And he calls out to them, and here come Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You know, we looked at Isaiah about two months ago. There's a passage out of Isaiah 43 that reminds me of this, this episode. Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be, what church? Burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 3. Then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives. Why? Because God is precious and God is their treasure. Willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can what? Say those last words. Save in this way. Now, one of the things it means to be a part of the people of God is that you have made God your treasure. It's not just about knowledge. It's about God becoming your ultimate worth. 
that you recognize the emptiness of idols and you avoid those empty promises, those idols that promise so much, but they deliver on nothing. But it's more than that. There is a certainty and a confidence and a stability and an unshakableness that comes to life in you when God is the treasure of treasures that can never be taken from you. I mean, everything in the world can be taken from you. Your health, your money, your career, even your life. And yet you still have a buoyancy and a stability and a poise because you still have God who holds you in the palm of His hands who is still the greatest treasure that can never be taken from you. You know, there's a, a rather curious verse at the end of, of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to what? Everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. It is one of the Old Testament references to the resurrection. Now, the question is, did Daniel understand the full implications of all of this that was written down? Maybe. Maybe not. But we do. You know, Peter refers to Christians who live today right now as exiles. And Paul reminds us, as well as the church in Philippi, that our citizenship is in heaven. The Hebrew writer says, here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to what? Come. So how do you maintain that observable core identity that demonstrates the indescribable beauty and worth and value of God? What are the ways that even as exiles today living in this city, do we bring a godly culture to this city? We can do it because we know one who passed through the fire for us. You remember in the garden, Christ in agony so profound that His sweat has droplets of blood in it. And why? It's because He sees the ferociousness of the judgment that He does not deserve that is going to fall on Him. And in love, He passes through the flame so that we don't have to. And when we see that He does it because we are His treasure, and we get our mind around it, then we make Him our treasure. And He radically changes everything about us. Our values, our, our desires, our hungers, the very things that we consider to be of worth, He changes. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and we're going to praise the greatness of this God who is the supreme value of the universe. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and if there are ways that we can minister to you, maybe you have never given yourself to this God.